0: Welcome to The Cultured Commuter,
1: a cultured approach to the daily commute.
0: I'm John Church.
1: And I'm Catherine
0: Moran. In this episode, we walk in the footsteps of those who sought their fortunes from the all-knowing oracle at Delphi.
1: In seeking answers from the mythic oracle, we delve into the Greek cultural ideals which are the fountainhead of Western civilization.
0: In ancient Greece... A little knowledge was a dangerous thing.
1: This truth is visited again and again in ancient Greek culture.
0: And where did you go for ultimate knowledge?
1: The only place to go is the Oracle of Delphi.
0: You know, It seems that ancient Greeks put great store in knowledge regarding their fate, and the sanctuary of Apollo at Delphi was the place to seek it.
1: It was a long journey from Delphi, high up in Mount Parnassus in a remote part of Greece. So really, why would people make this journey of over 100 miles from both Athens and Sparta?
0: You know, the reason people went there is really a mixture of fact and fiction. Going back to 1400 BC, the Oracle of Delphi was always seen as you know, one of the most important shrines in Greece. But the myth is that it was the sacred place of Gaia who is the mother earth goddess, who is guarded by her son, who took the form of a python. And in myth, Zeus, the father of all gods, set two eagles in flight, one to the east and one to the west, and they crisscrossed over Delphi, literally the birthplace of Gaia, the the mother goddess. So Delphi is seen as the very center of the earth. The omphalos is the word used for that, meaning the navel of the world.
1: Yeah, and Delphi was originally the site of worship for the Mother Earth goddess. But Apollo slayed her son, Python, in the form of a snake. Thus, it became the realm of the god Apollo.
0: You know, you know, suddenly, and the ancient goddess is overtaken by the male god and yet there's a lot of irony in all of this because mount parnassus is also the legendary home to the muses the nine daughters of zeus who whispered in men's ears as they created you know poetry music dance history and such so there's always this dance between the genders in mythology in these stories and it's embedded in delphi
1: and the muse's role as that interpreter that that Conduit from the gods is embodied again in the oracle at the shrine of Apollo, who is a woman and takes the name Pythia in remembrance of that original
0: myth. And there's a famous uh, hymn to Pythia by Apollo himself, supposedly. You right, know, the God writes a hymn. The God writes a hymn. Here he says, you know, In this place I am minded to build a glorious temple, to be an oracle for men. And I will deliver to them all counsel that cannot fail, answering them, in a rich temple. So people are coming from all over Greece to have their questions answered about their future by the oracle, who is considered to be this direct conduit to the god of Apollo, and around that grows a magnificent shrine.
1: And this is a really important act because the Greeks believed that their fate was cast the day they were born, so that their fate could actually be seen. And the answers that the oracle gave you were considered wisdom or knowledge or insight into that fate. However, you rarely got the answer you wanted. Her answers were usually cryptic, and they could determine the course of everything, from when a farmer planted seedlings to when an empire declared war. But arguments over the correct interpretation of the oracle were very common.
0: It's interesting. The Greek culture is always about probing, isn't it? You've it is. not it you questioning. As you said, whether it's you know, the flowers you should plant or the empire you should create. And the oracle seeded... In the very inner sanctum of Apollo's temple is the ultimate authority for those probing questions. So as you approach the temple of Apollo high on the hill, she's in the very inner sanctum in a place known as the Ataton. She was seen by no one except the priests who brought her. Let's say the pilgrim's question. Someone makes a long journey seeking knowledge.
1: And you don't even get to see her. You see her interpreter.
0: Imagine the feeling of approaching that temple.
1: It must have been so amazing. And you must have had all of this nerves, right, about what you would ask. And usually it was a yes or no question, a simply worded question, but something that was of great importance
0: to you. And imagine your mind building on that journey. You're away from all your daily cares. You're walking, you're walking. You're thinking, you're rethinking. We know what it's like when people have time to think, overthink. Of course. Overanalyze. And finally, you pass the magnificent monuments of Delphi, and finally you make it. And you know she's sitting in that sequestered area. And she sits upon a tripod, this three-legged stool, over a chasm that emits vapors from under the earth. And so this was the chasm that the Greeks considered the very navel of the world.
1: There's someone of high status who would come with a question, very simply, give it to a priest who is male, and the oracle would make a pronouncement, which would then be interpreted by the priests. So there's this idea of separation from the word of the God, from the seeker, and that the woman is almost like a blank vessel who sits over this chasm and who murmurs her arcane pronouncements. And it takes the mind maybe of a man, the priest, to interpret this. So it's woman as vessel, the messenger of the God, and really man as interpreter of the cryptic answer. And the answer could change.
0: I think one of, you know, one of the most famous examples of uh, predictions happened before the Battle of Salamis during the war with the Persians, this epic struggle between the Greeks and an invading foreign power. And it's when the Pythia first predicted doom. Uh, for the Athenians, and she said, the black blood drips from the highest rooftops. They have seen the necessity of evil. Get out, get out of my sanctum and drown your spirits in woe.
1: Well, this prediction certainly does not seem vague
0: at all. It's yes, destruction. It's destruction. The hills.
1: And the Athenians don't like it one bit. So they actually go back asking, not for a new fate, but for a way to escape this fate. So they go back to the oracle, and they, they get a different answer, because it seems that Athena has intervened with Zeus, pleading for him to help save her city. And the oracle offers some hope, proclaiming, a wall of wood alone shall be uncaptured, a boon to you and your children.
0: So now the Athenians have to interpret this. A wooden wall. What they take that to mean was to take to their ships their wooden ships and evacuate Athens in the face of the Persian invasion. This is 480 B.C. They leave their city. The population takes to their ships and they take shelter in the Bay of Salamis. The Persians destroy Athens and the Greeks can see Athens going up in smoke in the horizon. But the Greeks lure the Persian navy, with their hulking ships into that narrow bay of Salamis, and the Greeks are victorious. They just, they wipe out the Persian The wooden freed. wall works. They worked. This was the epic struggle that does unite all of these disparate Greek city-states. They defeat the Persians, and they listen to the oracle. They had to interpret it, but they listened.
1: And because of victories like the one in the Persian Wars, Delphi becomes a fantastic showcase of art and treasury. All of the Greek states would send rich gifts to keep the oracle on their side.
0: Maybe to show off a little bit who has the best monument, or the best shrine.
1: It's it's also evidence of proof. It's proof that what the oracle says is true. And also proof of the oracle's favor for your city-state. And it finally comes to an end in the 4th century AD when newly Christian Rome forbade prophesizing. But
0: let's visit Delphi in its heyday in the 5th century BC. So on first arriving, you would come upon a sanctuary known as the Pronaos of Athena. Uh, this is the gateway to Delphi. It's set about a mile from the sanctuary, and there was a circular temple known as the Tholos. This was the precinct of Athena, you know, the goddess of wisdom and war. Two things celebrated at Delphi.
1: Right. Also by Greek
0: culture in general. In general. And a female deity is welcoming you to the realm of Apollo, which he had taken from the mother earth goddess Gaia.
1: Next on your journey was the Castilian Spring, the oldest sacred site in Delphi. And it was the place for pilgrims to take a ritual cleansing. Not only making a physical journey from the, the place of everyday life, to the sanctuary of Apollo, but that you also needed to clean yourself in preparation for entrance. So if you're a murderer, you need to take a full bath. If you are innocent, you need only wash your face. And myth has it that the spring was created when the winged horse Pegasus struck its hoof in the earth.
0: And then you were finally ready to embark on the sacred way. And it's not a straight avenue, but it's a zigzag path that goes up the hill towards the temple. And it's filled with monuments and sculptures and treasuries from all the various city-states. So imagine this architectural and sculptural splendor is going to confront you as you make your way up.
1: And one of the most significant monuments that remains is the Scythian treasury at Delphi. It is relatively a small building, a simple cube with two female figures known as caryatids supporting the main entrance. But There's a really important set of sculptures on this treasury, a frieze that tells the story, one of the stories of the Trojan
0: War. I think that's a great reminder. This is the earliest epic battle
1: and one of the most significant in all of Greek history. So the frieze is split into two parts. The right side shows a scene from the Trojan War depicting the great Greek warrior Achilles, who as an infant was dipped into the river Styx by his mother. This made his body impervious to harm, all but for the ankle from which he was held. And Achilles is depicted here, fighting a Trojan warrior for the body of Antilochus.
0: Yeah, and Antilochus, who was a beautiful and much-adored Greek prince who had sacrificed himself to save his father's life. And his death was at the hand of an Ethiopian king. And, And that death of Antilochus was predicted by the oracle.
1: Another layer of proof.
0: And it's a reminder of people... Walking along the sacred way that, here's Greek history before you, here's the epic struggle, and here's the role of the oracle in this, the oracle you're about to seek. The role of her prediction in your future. And, you know, on that frieze, the left side of the frieze shows, although it appears as a dynamic battle between warriors who'll be won by the strongest, there's something else going on.
1: Right, the reality is, the left side of the freeze depicts that the gods and goddesses on Mount Olympus are the ones really deciding the fate of this battle, and in fact things. So the frieze shows the gods and goddesses, but they're divided in their loyalties. They're not wholly on one side or the other. And there's this monumental central figure identified as Zeus, who is making the final decision in the battles won by the Greeks, of course, who he favors. But very easily, we see the sense that through the gods and goddesses being divided, it could have gone either way.
0: And you know, I think the key point here is it does depict Tales of Troy on the treasury. The bigger idea at work though is that it celebrates heroism in war. The idea that the mere mortal through bravery and their deeds could ascend almost to the level of the gods, but also that the mortal could also fall through their own arrogance. You know, the term the Greeks used was hubris, you know, an arrogance so great it defied that of the gods.
1: And certainly the Trojan War is so important in Greek history because it's through these campaigns that the Greek city-states unite and form a cultural identity, both in the Trojan War invading a foreign city and another important war, the Persian War, where they unify to defeat a foreign invader.
0: And I think the next treasury that the pilgrim or visitor encounters develops that idea further. It's the treasury of the Athenians, which was built in 490 BC. Now, that's only 10 years after they vanquished the Persians. This is a trophy. This is a trophy building. It really is. And it's it, it, the, the victories over the Persians was prophesied by the oracle. And the Athenian treasury is a very small building, of very elegant proportions in the Doric style. And, of course, the Athenians in this golden age are perfecting architectural harmony and proportion. And, you know, the treasury of the Athenians displayed the spoils from the Battle of Marathon. It was one of the great defeats of the Persian invaders. So you have this elegant marble building, but then this pileup of armor and helmets and swords, uh, the spoils of war, of of your victory.
1: Which really are housed in the stoa of the Athenians, which is a gallery space for gatherings. It was another place to come together, communally even, and thank the gods for great success against the Persians. And you're right, it's decorated with shields from the defeated Persians at the Battle of Plataea. And not just a few shields.
0: Piles and piles and piles of military (laughs) trophies.
1: It's amazing how many are there. It, It reminds you of the numbers of
0: warriors they defeated. You know, as you're passing by these treasuries, and also memorial tablets along the path, I mean, littered with sculpture... You're seeing the triumph of humans aided by the gods or aided by knowledge of the gods, but you're rising to somewhere higher now. Right. You're making up that hill, and looming above you is the temple of Apollo. And that's, one of the, that's, that's the important point in Delphi. This is the dwelling place. Well, it's the temple to the god, this, the god of the sun, uh, Apollo himself, but it's the dwelling place of the oracle. And before you entered... There were two maxims carved on that temple front, and they're known as the Delphic maxims. One is, know thyself. The second is, nothing in excess.
1: And this maxim is a perfect expression of the Aristotelian mean. The Greeks really valued balance over all things, and the Aristotelian mean knowing courage as the mean between cowardice and hubris is exactly, I think, what this inscription, as you approach the oracle, was referring to.
0: And know thyself is the basis of the Greeks probing, questioning, probing everything, asking everything. It's the basis of their culture. And a little bit about
1: uncovering the fallacies that you might think about yourself or about others. In approaching the God, you had to be Honest and forthright.
0: This is a virtue, and it can also lead to great trouble, You know that search for knowledge, and nothing in excess. Also, when when excess goes too far, you have that ultimate sin in Greek culture, hubris. That's right. You've gone too far. There's one other third pledge, which is a bit more of a mystery, and it says, make a pledge, and mischief is nigh. It sometimes is interpreted as, you know, making a pledge comes from madness. These maxims do distill... The essence of Greek culture. This last one is a mystery, like the oracle's pronouncement itself, because it it can be misinterpreted in many ways. But also,
1: I think a little bit of the frustration of trying to get a straight answer out of the oracle. (laughs) You know, is it avoiding mischief, or is it a a reason for mischief?
0: And I guess fate will let us know eventually. (laughs) Eventually (laughs) we'll find out.
1: One figure, I think, from Greek history who exemplifies all of this is Socrates. And the Oracle of Delphi famously proclaimed Socrates the wisest man in the world. And I think wisdom is another important element. She doesn't say he's the smartest or the most intelligent. Rather, she decrees that he's the wisest man in the world. So Socrates didn't expect that upon his visit to the Oracle and said of this pronouncement that he recognized that he was ignorant in all things of the world. So he surmised he must be wiser than other men only in that he knew that he knew nothing.
0: And so right off the bat, this suggests that other men think they know something, and maybe they're mistaken. Right. And based on the prophecy, Socrates believes that it's his responsibility to spread this kind of wisdom, which was revealed to him by the oracle. Right. So he sets forth.
1: Right, so this know-nothing wisdom is proven by Socrates. He goes around using what will later become defined as the Socratic method, where one uses a series of questions to expose underlying logical fallacies or presuppositions, and he questions the leading wise men in Athens. Through this questioning, he exposes their false wisdom as ignorance. And this exposure of the posturing ruling class of the city although much admired by their children, ultimately causes Socrates to be put on trials for crimes against Athens.
0: It's almost as if a lawyer is probing one question after another question after another question, peeling away the layers of an answer, until to expose it at its very core.
1: And we're lucky to know about the trial and death of Socrates through the account of his student Plato and his work The Apology. And in this work, Plato recounts that Socrates was put on trial for corrupting the youth, which doesn't mean seeking them to rebellion, but rather means that he is encouraging them to challenge the authority of the city's elders.
0: To dare to question.
1: To question their parents, their leaders, right?
0: The root of much of history and and the cause of many a revolution or radical change.
1: And this exposure is what Socrates thinks that he's put on trial for. And he defends himself again through a brilliant speech, which utilizes, of course, the Socratic method. And he also uses the Oracle of Delphi as an excuse. He says, you know, I'm only doing this because of the pronouncement of the Oracle of Delphi.
0: But Socrates is found guilty.
1: According to Plato's apology, there was no way he was ever going to be found innocent. And
0: and because the trial was a joke, I think Socrates' answer supposedly is brilliant. He said when asked what punishment he should receive, he said for his service to the state, he should be rewarded with a big dinner. He wanted a feast. (laughs) So the court rejects that offer. Second recommendation was to pay a fine. But in the end, they sentence him to death, which he accepts. And he said that by silencing him, they've done more harm to themselves than to him. Wisdom is lost.
1: Then these concepts of truth and tragedy are further explored by Greek theater.
0: Yeah, these themes really play out at Delphi. Because just above the Theater of Apollo rises the Theater of Delphi. And imagine at the time, a character is standing on that stage in one of the most famous plays from ancient Greece, the character of Oedipus, who personifies all of these things. And he has a special relationship with the oracle. So imagine you've you've been at the oracle of Delphi. You're in the sanctuary. You're in the shrine. You're being reminded of the triumphs and tragedies of your history. And then, in front of you, theater plays it out, as it only can.
1: In the center of this Greek tragedy, Oedipus, is the oracle of Delphi, whose pronouncement most famously to Oedipus is that he would murder his father and sleep with his mother. But the actual words of the
0: oracle went as follows. Woes, lamentations, mourning, portents dire. To wit, I should defile my mother's bed and raise up seed too loathsome to behold and slay the father from whose loins I sprang.
1: Oedipus wasn't originally written by Sophocles. In fact, it's a very old story from Greek history. So the Greeks would have known the story before they even witnessed it on the stage. Oedipus is born the son of a king, and they take him to the oracle to find his fate. The oracle decrees that Oedipus will kill his father and sleep with his mother. Clearly displeased by this pronouncement, the king and queen take the young child to the woods where they bind and pierce his feet and ultimately abandon him. Of course, a shepherd takes him off to another land where he's raised as the son of the king and queen, until one day a seer tells him at a party that his fate is to kill his father, sleep with his mother. Oedipus doesn't like this fate, so decides to go as far away from his mother and father as he can.
0: Escaping fate, so to speak.
1: That's what he tries to do, to outrun his fate, and he runs right back into the arms of his biological parents, who too, in abandoning him originally, were attempting to outrun their fate. He dispatches his father on a bridge and comes into town, solves the riddle of the Sphinx, and marries the queen. Through a series of Greek tragic events, all of this is revealed in the play Oedipus the King. So Oedipus finds that he can't outrun his fate, and in fact, that moment of discovery, that moment of realization, is memorialized by Oedipus saying, Oh woe is me. Methinks unwittingly, I laid but now a dread curse on myself.
0: I mean, it is a performance oriented culture.
1: It is ancient
0: Greece. The art, the architecture, you know, the sculpture, another theater.
1: And this idea too that even if you're the king, you can't outrun your fate. So whatever the oracle tells you is really, really going to come true, no matter what you do to try to prevent it. Even taking yourself away from the person who the oracle you think has prophesied that you'll kill doesn't work. So if the king doesn't have any hope, what hope is there for you? The theater isn't just about storytelling. We see bigger ideas like fate and heroism all play out in a performance-based culture, which is evinced again through the Pythian games.
0: The Pythian games that were held at Delphi, named for the oracle. The games were based on competition in music and poetry. Later on, athletic competitions were added. These really represent two aspects of the Greek ideal, you know, a sound mind and a sound body.
1: And the Greeks believed that their gods took human form, and the form that they took was athletic. So they did feel that the more athletic they could make their own bodies, the closer to godlike they became. So this kind of sport makes sense. Winners wore wreaths made from laurels in the city of Tempe in Thessaly, where Apollo was said to have picked laurel on his way to Delphi. But of course, there's a story about Apollo's laurel wreath.
0: Oh, and how. And it is the story that looms through history, the story of Apollo and Daphne. It's a tale of a god. Apollo, who suffers from hubris. Because as one of the most beautiful and talented of gods, Apollo had women who swooned for him. Any woman would. He could have anything he wished, until he insulted Cupid. He said Cupid was too young to be playing with bows and arrows. (laughs) So in revenge, Cupid shot Apollo with a golden arrow, making him fall in love with the first woman he would see. Cupid then shot the wood nymph Daphne with a lead arrow, making her repulsed by the first man she would see.
1: Of course, as fate would have it, Apollo and Daphne see each other. He pursues her, she runs from him. He had never been so smitten by any woman, and she'd never been so repulsed. At the moment he sees her, Daphne begs her father, the earth god, to save
0: her. Her father turns her into a laurel tree, frozen forever in time, you know, sitting for all eternity in the woods, and you know, and ashamed of his behavior. Apollo wears a laurel wreath in his hair, for the girl that got away, for the woman that made him see the price of his own vanity.
1: If only Apollo had consulted his own oracle. After a decree by Theodosius in 393 CE, all pagan shrines were closed, and Delphi's grand navel of the world became a myth.
0: Apollo may not be worshipped at Delphi today, but his legend lives on. Uh, you know, today Delphi is a World Heritage Site, which really does encapsulate the Greeks' ideal of humans' place in the world. You know, Delphi was always a place of mystery of an oracle who spouted riddles that could be unlocked to tell of a person or a whole nation's fate. And the oracle, really, or the myth of the oracle, really keys into our desire to know the future, which is an eternal, universal concern. So on that remote summit in central Greece, overlooking the mighty Mount Parnassus, you might still be able to hear the whisper of a god in the ear of a long-lost oracle among those ruins.
1: Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to our podcast, where we will continue to connect the big ideas and small details that shape world culture. The music in this podcast is an excerpt from The Toile Danse and is provided courtesy of Medon.